This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. It's the Bartender Journey Podcast, number 183. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, this week on the show, we're going to talk with the charming Gemma Patterson. She's brand ambassador for the Belvini Scotch Whiskey. And uh, we're going to have a nice chat all about scotch. Learn, uh, Maybe we'll learn a little something new about scotch. Uh, first, let's do a book of the week. I didn't, I didn't prepare one. Uh, I didn't have one picked out for this week. But uh, this morning, Paul Packle posted a book suggestion on Facebook. And uh, if you're not familiar with Paul, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Paul's. Uh, if you ever ch- have a chance to attend one of his events, uh, I could not recommend it more highly. Uh, he does uh, one called the Whiskey Authority, and he does one called the Rum Authority, and uh, you should definitely check that if, out if you can. Uh, I think I got on the list by doing uh, Bar Smarts. You know, you know, Bar Smarts, uh, well, you can do Bar Smarts uh, online, and uh, it's only like 40 bucks or something. And then, uh, then after you complete that, you can do Bar Smarts Advanced, which is a one-day program, and they travel around to different cities doing that, and it's a great event. And, and uh, oh, so Paul was one of the founders of that, along with uh, Steve Olson, uh, David Wondridge, uh, and of course Dale DeGroff, and um, a couple others, which I am forgetting at the moment. Forgive me. Uh, but um, th- those are the uh, rock stars in the industry. And uh, if you can get a chance to uh, to do bar smarts, you definitely should. And then you might get invited to a Whiskey Authority event, which was awesome. Uh, Paul also does events uh, that are paid. The uh, Whiskey and Rum Authorities. Are free for uh, those who are invited, so uh, that's a cool thing. But uh, you also might get a chance to see Paul at a paid event. He does, I know he does events at uh, Keen's Steakhouse here in New York a lot, and uh, he does them around the country as well. So uh, let's see, how would you get more information about that? I know his uh, well, his he does a thing called the Spirits Journal, which is a um, publication that's put out four times a year, I believe, and that's. Uh, rating different spirits and uh it's pretty much considered the uh the most uh important um ratings on spirits in in the world i think at least in my opinion and uh it's called the spirits journal and uh you can check it out at spiritsjournal.com that might be the best place to get more information about paul packle anyway uh i digress uh but um the book he suggested on facebook this morning is called the big man of jim beam booker no and the number one bourbon in the world I have not read it, but if Paul Packle suggests it, I will definitely check it out. And uh, I feel uh, confident in recommending it it to you. So uh, he says, this is an insightful, quick, and highly entertaining read about a genuine visionary of American distilling. So that'll be our book of the week. And if you get on over to bartenderjourney.net, you'll see an Amazon link to it. And uh, anytime you click through an Amazon link to get to amazon.com, it doesn't cost you any extra, but it helps out a little bit if you buy anything. You could buy that book or something else after clicking through a link on, uh, on bartenderjourney.net. helps us out just a little bit. We appreciate it. All right, how about a cocktail of the week? Uh, this past week, I um, did it. Well, I've been making a crazy amount of old fashions lately. Uh, I did an event uh, last week where I must have made two hundred of them or more, and uh, I had asked the chef to order me uh, some some Angostura uh, bitters, the uh, the aromatic bitters, and uh, I was running low. And I went back. I was like, "Hey, chef, can you order me some more bitters?" He's like, "What?" I just ordered you one. Uh, yeah, we made like 200 old fashions and uh, used it for other things as well. So uh, I need more. And he was like, okay. <laughs> I'm used to, you know, he's a lot of, a lot of places will order bitters, uh, you know, 
once every two years or something. <laughs> Those bottles in some bars will last forever, but not these days. I mean, old fashions are back in a big way, aren't they? So uh, I'm going to do a rum old fashioned as the uh, cocktail of the week. I happened to be at a store the other day and saw the Havana Club uh, rum, which I heard a lot about but had not had a chance to sample myself. So uh, I picked that up, and boy, is it good. The Havana Club, uh, it's actually made in, made in Puerto Rico, and it has an interesting story, this uh, brand. But uh, anyway, this is the uh, Anejo Classico. Uh, Havana, Havana Club, Anejo Classico, Puerto Rican rum. Boy, is it good. Uh, so we're going to do an old-fashioned with that. I'm going to add uh, two and a half ounces. We're going to do two and a half ounces of this Havana Club rum. We're going to do a quarter ounce of... Uh, simple syrup made with demerara sugar and uh, we're going to do two dashes of uh, bitters. You can use Angostura bitters. I'm lucky enough to have here in the cocktail lab slash studio about uh, 35 or 40 different types of bitters. So uh, I grabbed bitter cube bitters, uh, bitter cubed uh, boulevard bitters and uh, about 15 drops of those and uh, that went very well with the uh, with the rum old fashioned. So uh, yeah, I'll have the recipe and a nice picture of that up on bartenderjourney.net. All right, let's talk to Gemma Patterson from the Belvini. Hi, Brian. How are you? Good, good. How are you doing? Good. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, that's great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Well, I know you're a huge fan of whiskey. How does someone go from being a whiskey fan to being a uh, whiskey brand ambassador? Wow. I think there's really no set path for becoming a brand ambassador, but for myself, it really was quite a journey. I started... Um, kind of fallen in love with whiskey and single malt. I'm obviously, you can probably tell by my accent, I am Scottish. Um, not Irish, as many people seem to think I am, <laughs> but I'm Scottish. Um, I was born in the Hebrides in the Isle of Lewis, which is basically a pretty remote part of Scotland on the West Coast. Um, growing up there, you're kind of, in Scotland in general, whiskey is a really important part of culture and sharing and Kayleys and dancing and we have a lot of that going on on the West Coast in the Hebrides where I grew up. So my first summer home from university, I found myself working in this beautiful um, salmon fishing lodge where that was when I first tried Bob Annie Doublewood. Um, out by the river trying my hand at fly fishing, someone handed me this beautiful silver hip flask. I had a wee swig of whiskey on a cold, windy day, and that warmed me up, and from then... I kind of fell in love with whiskey. And then fast forward a few years, I found myself living in Speyside. After visiting lots of distilleries and kind of it being a bit of a hobby of mine, I actually had the opportunity to start working at the distillery. Um, I was based there for a couple of years before the, the company decided to move me across here as ambassador for East Coast America. So I have the lovely job of traveling across the East Coast and talking about Bob Annie. That's great. And uh, you have a lot of travel coming up, huh? Oh, I sure do, yeah. Um, it's been quite an adventure for me. I haven't, before moving here, I had been to the States once when I was a kid, um, when I was seven to Orlando. But I basically moved out here four months ago, having not really explored the States, apart from Orlando as a kid, and everyone's telling me that doesn't count. So I've been to 17 States in the last four months, um, and a few more coming up, and it's just a wonderful opportunity to meet new people and to talk to new and old fans of Balvenie. Yeah, well, let's talk about Belveni. Like, um, just tell us a little bit about the region it's made in, and and uh, some some of the process about how it's made. Yeah, absolutely. So, where the distillery is based, it's in a region called Speyside. 
for those of you who are familiar or aren't familiar, we do have five whiskey regions in Scotland, um, each classified quite differently. So Isla, for example, that's where all your peaty, smoky, punchy whiskies come from. Whereas Bayside, you've got kind of more typically sweet floral whiskies. So that's that's really what Bovenny is. It's a typical Bayside whiskey. Really honeyed, really sweet, nice and approachable. Not a whiskey to be scared of. I've met a lot of people who said, oh, no, no, I don't like scotch. I can't drink scotch. I don't like whiskey. Um, and they've kind of dove in at the deep end and tried a really smoky, peaty, heavy whiskey. But I think when you approach Balvenie, it's quite it's lovely and sweet. So that's where that's where we're based. We're up in Speyside. About half of the single malt facilities in Scotland are in Speyside, incredibly. We have, oh, last time I checked, about 115 registered single malt facilities. Um, 49 of them in Speyside alone. Wow. Well, the uh, single malt kind of craze is uh, actually a relatively new, a relatively uh, new phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, prior to the 1960s, we weren't. Nobody was really drinking single malt whiskey. It was something that was very exclusive. You could find it in small batches at a high-end hotel. It would have been really difficult to come across single malt whiskey in the states. Well, from Scotland. Um, but 1963, so the company who owns um, Balvenie is William Grant and Sons, our parent company. We're still family-run, so it's the fifth generation of our founder, William Grant, who are actually in, the control, in control of the company today. But they made the decision back in the 60s to start Bossley in 1963, to be specific, the Glenfiddich, which is our sister distillery, the Glenfiddich Pure Malt, and this, the original, and this was actually kind of marketed globally, and it was the first single malt whiskey to have done so. Balvenny, we started bottling a single malt in the 70s. You then found lots of other companies starting to kind of crop up and start to, build, start to bottle their single malt throughout the 70s and the 80s. There was a big recession, kind of sadly, in the industry in the 80s, and that turned a lot of distillers to bottling single malt as the blenders weren't buying as much liquid. So the category just boomed, and it's booming still. Uh, we can't make enough whiskey to satisfy global demand. Well, I'm sure most everyone listening knows the difference between a single malt scotch whiskey and a blended whiskey, uh, but uh, there's still a lot of confusion, uh, especially among consumers. So I think it's worth reiterating uh, the difference and what the what the distinction is. Yeah, incredibly, a blended whiskey can contain the product of almost 40 different distilleries, and you don't only have... Um, malted barley, so that's what single malt means, right? It's malted, it's made from 100% malted barley and from the product of just one distillery. So every single drop of Balvenie has been made, produced and matured at the Balvenie distillery. That's what single malt means. Whereas with your blended whiskies, you use not only malted barley, but grain whiskey as well, so which can come from rye, corn, wheat. And a blended whiskey can contain up to 90% of this grain whiskey which is a much lighter, more delicate flavor profile, and only 10% malt, and they're all blended together. Wow, I didn't realize that much was allowed. Yeah, it's it's allowed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can find that the really lower end of the spectrum, almost 90% grain and 10% malt, and then a high-end malt, you would generally find the, the opposite, where the high-end blend, apologies, um, you could find generally around 50-50, yeah, it is a little confusing. I mean, the, just the term single malt, it's easy to con- confuse that and, and assume that that means a single grain, but that's not it, is it? Yeah, you're right. 
But then and there are... We often s- kind of terms to think about it in wine terms. That's what you would think, single malt. It comes from the origin of the malt, but actually it's nothing to do with the origin of the malt. It's the actual distillery. Right, right. Although there are blended Scotch whiskies that are made from 100% malted barley. Yeah. Yeah, there are. That's a blended malt, mm-hmm. but it's still classified as a blend. We have one ourselves, which is called Monkey Shoulder. Right. And this is a this is a blended malt. It's three Speyside malts blended together. And the... You, you'll you'll be familiar with the term monkey shoulder, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we launched this whiskey in 2005, and it was kind of a hats off to the guys who were working on the floor malting. So for those of you who aren't, who, who aren't familiar with the process, the floor maltings is where the barley's malted, and it's a really, a lot of barley nowadays is commercially malted, but above any, we still have our own floor maltings where we malt our own barley ourselves. And it's a hard, hard job to the barley has to be very manual, very physical task. Barley has to be turned every kind of four to eight hours. Um, and once upon a time, this was all done by hand with a wooden shield. And Monkey Shoulder was essentially, we named our whiskey after a repetitive strain injury. So when you're working, turning the grain over and over again, you would find your shoulders would droop. And that's where the term comes from. So it's a kind of hats off to the guys who spent all the years mothing our barley by hand. Yeah, Monkey Shoulder is a great product. Stuff. Yeah, it's great. It's a really, again, a lovely, sweet, approachable whiskey, and it's actually very mixable. We find it's really taken off with bartenders. Oh, yeah, it's great, and Scotch cocktails. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Belvini. We, we tasted some uh, beautiful whiskeys that evening at the uh, the event you invited me to at, at the steakhouse, the, uh, the the strip house, and uh, the Doublewood has always been a favorite of mine. Well, yeah, I think if it wasn't for the Doublewood, I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, it's really the whiskey that got me into the industry. So of course, double wood refers to the aging process. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a the maturation process. Um, double wood essentially means you can you can guess two different types of casks. So predominantly, what we're using is American oak. So the whiskey is matured first of all for twelve years in American oak bourbon barrels, which have been sourced here um, in Kentucky, shipped over across to Scotland, which. Just on a side note, we actually have, um, I heard a fact the other day that we've got around 20 million of your American bourbon barrels maturing in our warehouses in Scotland, wow. which is four times more than our population. <laughs> <That's just> a- <laughs> so for every person in Scotland, we've got four Kentucky bourbon barrels maturing in our warehouses. Amazing. Which is a fun fact. Um, but yes, yeah, so predominantly we're maturing in the American oak, the ex-American bourbon barrels. That's how we refer to them. Then we'll actually transfer that after 12 years into a Spanish oak cask, so a different species of oak, which has come from the north of Spain generally. And it's actually been used for Oloroso cherry to mature in Spain. And we'll go, we'll put it into that cask for around six to nine months just for a finish in the end. So you have this predominantly light, sweet character coming through, coming through from the American oak and then a bit of spice and tannin and complexity coming through from the sherry finish at the end. Mm, you're making me thirsty, Gemma. <laughs> me too. You we'll have to was... have another jam. Yeah. You know, hey, you know what I was curious about, and I've been har- having a hard time finding the answer. Are all sherry casts made from oak? Um, are all sherry casts made from oak? That's a good question. I'm not sure how strictly the sherry industry is regulated, but all Scotch whiskey by law has to be matured in oak. So. That's, a, that's a very strict situation, and it's something that I think can give people confidence in their dram of scotch 
we have so many rules and regulations in place that are imposed by a governing body called the Scotch Whiskey Association. They deem that the spirit has to be produced in Scotland. It then has to be matured in an, in an oak cask, and that oak cask has to be under 700 litres in volume for a minimum of three years on Scottish soil, and then it has to also be bottled and labelled there as well. So we can't ship a, a cask across to the States and bottle it and label it here. That all has to be done in Scotland prior right, to yeah. a journey across the Atlantic Ocean to us here on the other side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's go back to malting for a minute. Um, there's, that's another thing there's a little confusion on, and, and not everyone knows exactly what that means. Yeah, sure. I'd love to take you through the process. I've actually spent a night shift working in our malting floors myself. Um, this was my kind of first time getting hands-on and really understanding the physical job that it is and what the guys do to malt. So we have some fields up above any which will harvest <clears throat> generally around September, October time, dependent on the weather, the season. I mean, obviously, it's the barley's grown in the field. It's natural. We can't, well, our weather can be quite unpredictable in Scotland, so we can't tell you exactly when the harvest is going to be ready. But generally, September, October. We'll harvest it, and then we store the barley for a few months because malt and process is essentially germination. We're making the barley grow. And as soon as you harvest it, its natural cycle is it's not going to grow until the following spring. So you have to leave it to be dormant for a while before we then, through the process, force it to grow. So what we do is we take it and we steep it in spring water for a couple of days. And this is really important. It's basically we're emulating spring rain. The barley thinks it's springtime. Enzymes are going to start to become active. And really importantly, those enzymes, they start to break down um, the structure of the barley. So the barley is filled with starches, which we want to convert into soluble fermentable sugars. Without those enzymes, without this process, so we'd have no alcohol because the next step is to add yeast to extract those sugars, to add yeast to eat those sugars and produce alcohol. So that's what the, the whole malting process is doing. After the two days steeping, we then lay it on the malting floor and this is germination. Just allowing it to grow and the roots to form, that's generally going to take five to ten days, so, you know, what we could consider our hottest summer, which really is not anything compared to what I've experienced in New York this summer. Right, right. I was about to say, oh, is it that long? But then I have to remember it's cooler there. Yeah, yeah, it's cooler. So generally around five, and then um, right in the heart of winter in December, around Christmas time, the barley can be malted for around ten days on the floor for germination. Then once, once that cycle happens, and this is where the monkey shoulder term comes from because it has to be turned while it's on the floor because you've got the root that's growing, it'll all start to knot and become tangled together. Um, it's also going to start to root into the floor and start to, it's a natural process. So the barley starts to radiate a little bit and produce a little bit of heat. So we're turning it to keep it cool as well. Um, once that process is complete, we then put it into a kiln, dry it, take out all the moisture from the barley so it's down to around 4 or 5% moisture. And then that's ready for us to then process and grind down. So by introducing the heat, that's stopping the germinating process, yeah? Stopping the germinating process. But what's really important is we have to maintain those enzymes. So at all points in this process, the barley's alive. It's a living organism. Every single grain of barley. So we have to care for it. We have to nurture it. So we have to dry it very, very slowly and gently so that it doesn't, we don't destroy the enzymes because they're very important for us. 
because without those enzymes, we're not going to get the sugar in the next part of the process. So peat is used as the heat source, or was traditionally used anyway, and uh, that's where the smoky flavor is uh, comes from, yeah? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, with boveni, we'll use a very, very small amount of peat, which for the drying process, which you're in the malting process, which you're not really, you're not going to get through um, on the nose of the palate to the final final stage when you're actually trying the whiskey in your glass. Um, but obviously, other distilleries use a lot of peat in this part of the process. So right. So that there. so that was, I, I guess, because there's a lot of peat uh, available naturally occurring, that became sort of the tradition, right? But then. Uh, in mm-hmm. different regions, I guess, uh, different styles of Scotch whiskey, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, traditionally, peat was a fuel. It's, if, for those of you that don't know exactly what peat is, it's compacted earth. It's years worth of um, biodegrading plants and trees, um, which is kind of compacted. And we um, dig it up and you dry it. And use it to heat. Used to use it to heat our homes and the island I grew up on. It's still it's still used. People still use it to heat their homes. But yeah, it would have been a crucial um, and a really accessible fuel source. So it wasn't a flavor source by any means. Once upon a time, when with whiskey making, it was a fuel source. Right. right. And then it was actually with the, the kind of rise of single malt whiskey that you found the distillers starting to move away from peat and move towards more um, and sweeter and easier more palatable whiskey. Right, right. I heard somebody describe peat as young coal or uh, organic matter that's on its way to becoming coal. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good way to describe it. I guess with more age and more pressure, it becomes coal. So, so uh, what were some of the other expressions, Belvini expressions, we tasted that evening at the uh, at the tasting? So we moved on from the 12 doublewood to the 14 Caribbean cask. Ah, the, the Caribbean cask, yeah. Yeah, the, the clues in the name, it, Caribbean rum that we used for that finish. Um, similar process to the 12 double wood and it's 14 years in American oak. But the magic kind of happens with this one when we transfer it for its final six to nine months in a Caribbean rum cask. Yeah, yeah. As I remember, I think that was my favorite uh, that we tasted that evening. Yeah, I find it's a, a firm favorite with a lot of people. Um, it's very approachable. It's vibrant. It's sweet. You get lovely tropical notes that come through from that rum cask finish. It's a it's a special whiskey. Um, it's interesting. The rum people ask us all the time, and unfortunately, I can't let you into a scoop today on on the show, Brian. But people always ask us, where, "What rum do you use, and where does the rum come from?" Um, the rum only really exists for this whiskey, and we actually blend our own rums at the distillery. So our, our malt master, oh, wow. he creates his own blend to, to season the casks with. Oh wow! We'll season the casks on site and then sell the rum on, put our whiskey in, and then we have our Caribbean cask. Wow, that sounds quite unique and uh, unusual. It definitely is. I mean, the whole process of maturation and how we're actually mature, enjoying matured spirits was really a happy accident in the first place. I mean, your casks, they're just a transportation vessel. So once upon a time, they were just used to transport the whiskey around the country, hide the whiskey. Um, You're probably aware that our industry in Scotland is founded on smuggling and bootlegging a couple of hundred years ago. um, Most of the whiskey, over 50% of our whiskey that was consumed was illegal and illicit. (laughs) So a lot of whiskey was hidden in casks. There could have been casks that had held wines and sherries. 
coming over from France and Spain or um, jams, marmalade. I've even heard of instances of herring and fish. Yuck. Which is interesting. But yeah, it's just a happy accident. Didn't take the distillers long to realise that when their whiskey reached the other side of wherever they were sending it off to, that it was a bit more palatable. People were enjoying it a bit smoother, a bit more mellow. And it's still something that we're exploring today, um, this interaction between the whiskey and the wood. There's still something magical that happens in the cask that we don't fully understand. And I think that's something that keeps us all quite captivated as well in the industry. Well, that sounds a little mysterious and delicious. <laughs> well, thank you, Gemma. Yeah, I don't want to keep you any longer. I know you have a lot to do to get ready for your travels. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brian. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Oh, the pleasure was mine. I hope to run into you again very soon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thanks for attending our tasting last night. It was wonderful to have you along. And your tasting notes, by the way, were incredible. Oh, You've got you. a good nose and a good palate. Oh, thank you. It, it's something you're not born with. You, you have to work on that, And uh, but it's it's good work. It's like a muscle. That's it. All right, Gemma, thanks again. Cheers. Okay, thank you, Brian. Bye. All right, there you have it. Great uh, great chat about Scotch whiskey, and I uh, hope you learned a little something there, and I uh, hope it made you thirsty uh, for some scotch. And so uh, stay tuned. We do a toast every week at the very end of the show. And uh, But first, I'll remind you, my name is Brian Vince Weber. Thanks again for listening. And you can find the website at bartenderjourney.net. You can follow me on Twitter at barkeeptips. You can find the Facebook page. Just search for Bartender Journey. And uh, bartender, I'm Bartender Journey also on um, Instagram. So uh, check, check us out there. And, uh, yeah, I hope you're subscribed so you can get the, uh, the new shows as soon as they become as soon as they become available all right here's our toast and it's very simple this time it's uh cheers in scotland they say slancha we'll see you next time on the bartender journey podcast